And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, the Alabama Supreme Court recently found in an 8-to-1 decision that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. Now, this is what happened, as I understand it. Three families argued that an in vitro fertilization clinic should be held accountable for the accidental death of their preborn children, which were frozen embryos under the clinic's care. Now, uh, in vitro fertilization, and this is a shorthand way of putting it, is a fertility treatment in which doctors, uh, well, fuse sperm and eggs to create human embryos, and then they will implant them in a woman's womb without a sexual act. Embryos that are intended to be implanted at a future date are frozen. Undesired embryos are routinely destroyed or used for scientific research, which again kills these preborn children. Uh, this decision of the Alabama Supreme Court has really spawned much controversy, not, not only about the substance of the ruling, but about the rationale for it. Uh, because the uh, Supreme Court justice invoked biblical language and language from uh, Christian tradition, uh, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, uh, you have people like Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post saying that, well, welcome to the theocracy. So I've asked uh, our friend Carter Sneed to join us. He is the author of an extraordinary book called The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He uh, serves, uh, well, he directs the Dean Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a professor of law and concurrent professor of political science. Also, he's a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life and a fellow of the Hastings Center. Carter, good to have you back here. Thank you. Great to be with you again, as always. Let's talk, let's talk about this. Um, did, did I set it up properly? No, it was it was extraordinarily precise and 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 perfectly stated, it, it, and it was refreshing because what you read in the media is so confusing and tendentious about this. It, yet you could be forgiven. I have people that I've known for a long time saying, "Why did the Alabama Supreme Court just unilaterally declare in vitro uh, in vitro human embryonic human beings to be to be full persons under the law? Are they just imposing their you know theocratic views yeah. on?" Yeah. On the Alabama, and you very precisely described exactly the procedural context in which this came up. They were interpreting a statute, uh, and the, they were trying to understand what, whether or not a particular statute uh, allowed recovery in, in a civil suit for people for the loss of their child, whether or not the, the, the term minor child referred to unborn children who were outside of the body, and in, in, in this case in freezers. Um, and they were bound by a Supreme Court precedent that said, uh, the, uh, the the wrongful death of a minor act includes uh, unborn children at any gestational stage of development and didn't make any exception for whether we're talking about in utero babies or, or ex utero human beings in freezers. And so it was a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the statute. They weren't trying to impose their will. Now, there was a concurring opinion. That actually wasn't even the majority, majority opinion. A concurring opinion, which went into some sort of political theory and, and talked about different religious sources of authority. Uh, but that wasn't the central you know, analytic yeah. mechanism the court used to come to their judgment. They just said, look, this is what the statute means. Uh, it means all unborn human beings at any stage, and, and it would be anomalous 
to exclude unborn children who were uh, in cryopreservation in, in IVF clinics. Yeah. Yeah. And as you also said, it was actually IVF parents who brought the lawsuit. It right. wasn't uh, like pro-life, you know, nonprofits bringing the lawsuit to try to stop IVF in Alabama. Um, so, so it's quite a, it's, 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 yeah, it was, it was a very well-described um, uh, overview that you gave. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, and as you said, also, it's kind of created a, a firestorm of controversy, but but if, again, if you take a look at it, um, there's no necessary reason why it would have to stop all IVF uh, in in Alabama. In the state of Louisiana, for example, they've declared by statute uh, unborn children outside the body to be juridical persons, and they still do IVF. They just do it in a way that uh, is mindful of the fact that, that that they're working with juridical persons and they're working with in vitro embryos. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, this concurring opinion by the Chief Justice uh, cites Genesis, uh, Saint Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin. How those cite? How significant are those citations to the well, I mean, ruling I think, itself? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they're not essential to the ruling itself. I mean, I'm not. I'm, that's not to, to say that they're not interesting or worth thinking about. But uh, but this is this is a state. This is a case involving statutory interpretation. Uh, your listeners may not know it, but at common law, before there were statutes on the issue, people couldn't even recover in tort suits for the loss of life of their loved ones or people on whom they depended. And so, so states passed laws called wrongful death acts, which were statutes that created civil rights of action so that people whose loved, loved ones or, or, or other people that were important to them were, were uh, wrongfully killed, tortiously, negligently, or intentionally, that they could sue and, and recover. It's actually, it's, it, you may remember O.J. Simpson was acquitted of, uh, of homicide uh, back in the 90s, uh, but then on the exact same set of facts, he was found liable for causing the wrongful death of those two individuals right. and was liable for millions of dollars. And, um, and that lawsuit wouldn't have been possible uh, in California if there weren't a wrongful death act that would allow the the, the survivors to sue uh, uh, Mr. Simpson under the statute. Yeah. Um, there was also here, I'm looking for my notes, there was also a constitutional amendment adopted by uh, the citizens of Alabama in 2018 that affirmed the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. And uh, then there was uh, another act in 2019. Do you know the history on those? Yeah, I think what you have in those cases are the people of Alabama acting through their legislature, uh, moving to try to encode in the law respect for the unborn child. And both of those uh, legislative moves were made before the Dobbs case, um, before it could have any effect on, on abortion. Right. Um, and uh, but it could have effect in contexts other than abortion, and this is something else that's uh, another another theme in the public discourse that I think is misleading. But somehow this this case is follows from the Dobbs case. Well, that that's completely the Dobbs case is irrelevant to this case. The Dobbs case only concerns abortion and returns the legis- to the to the political processes, the freedom and power to govern ourselves on the question of abortion, yeah. whereas. In vitro embryos have been subject to legal protections in different jurisdictions for for decades, yeah, and yeah. before and after uh, Dobbs. And so, um, but no, I, I think Alabama is a state where it, where it seems that the state legislature has moved in various years to try to memorialize in the law the, the citizens' view that unborn children are 
are valuable and, and should be protected and are part of the human family and they're part they're inside the the boundaries of the moral and legal community and so that those authorities also i think influence some of the justices in thinking about how they should interpret the language from the wrongful death act yeah uh, so what we're dealing with here is not nothing that had to do with Dobbs. Uh, this is simply a, an Alabama statute that the Supreme Court uh, interpreted uh, eight to one that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. That's the key thing, the wrongful death of a that's, minor act. That's the key thing. And yep. the other key thing is, is that this case was brought by and won by <laughs> right. IVF parents. Okay? That's right. So yeah. This is I mean, the, the, the idea and this and the notion that this this case marks the death. I mean, there's no sense at all. Which is obvious. Wouldn't every parent who I mean, who, who, who follows that pathway in IVF want their embryos to be protected by the by the by the facilities where they're stored by the way and i don't know if this was what the facility called it i think it probably was because in the opinion in quotation marks the court refers to the place where the embryos were stored as the quote frozen nursery huh. so my 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 sense is from from context it sure seems like and i and I, i've not seen any confirmation of this but in context it seems like that's what the facility called the 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 section that they left unsecured, where the uh, where the frozen embryos were stored, where the embryonic human beings uh, were kept in cryo storage, and so and everybody everybody who's involved knows that when these embryos are conceived, um, the hope for these embryos is that they become tra- that they get transferred to the woman's womb, as you said, and 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 implant and, and, and grow and gestate and ultimately are born and. And, and, you know, they're, they're children to be with the President's Council on Bioethics, where I used to work as general counsel right. to be on CAS. Before we, we, taught, we wrote, a, wrote a whole report on this in 2004. It's called Reproduction and Responsibility. And one of the things that has been striking about the discourse here is it's almost as if people have entirely forgotten the debates over embryonic, uh, embryonic moral status that we had in the, in, you know, from 1998 until 2016. We were having these conversations in the context of cloning and embryo research, and IVF was part of it because the embryos that were used for stem cell research were, were donated from IVF clinics. And we had debates about the moral status of the embryo and why it is the case that every member of the human family from conception of natural death is entitled to, to moral concern and the protection of the law. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are or how big you are, or how old you are, how dependent you are. Everybody counts and everybody matters and should be protected and cared for. And it's so strange. And there's even a federal law that's been in place since 1995 that forbids the federal funding of research that, that destroys or harms in vitro embryos. So it's not a new thing that we're talking about the importance of in vitro embryos or embryonic human beings right. that, uh, who are stored in freezers. We, we've had this debate, and, and it's just uh, it's as if the idea that, it, that people are talking about how shocking and surprising this is, it's almost as if those debates never happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, people do seem to have forgotten the, the whole debate over embryonic stem cell research. And uh, the... And the status uh, of um, of uh, in vitro uh, children conceived through in vitro fertilization and then frozen um, for use. Where, when the Catholic Church looks at this, now we'll move away from U.S. law here in Alabama law. When the Catholic Church looks at the the, the in vitro child who's born. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reluctance to affirm 
the full personhood of that child who was conceived through in vitro fertilization, even though the church uh, uh, doesn't like the method of conception and gestation. Right, just in the same way that the church welcomes and loves and baptizes children born out of wedlock. Right. I mean, they, they, there's, all children are valuable and to be loved and cared for in the eyes of God, and, and um, that's certainly true of babies conceived by IVF. Yeah. Carter Holder, we've got to take a break. Music's coming up on us, and we're going to continue. Right. My guest is Carter Sneed. What it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Carter Sneed, author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Uh, The occasion for our conversation today is the controversy surrounding the Alabama Supreme Court decision that uh, found by 8 to 1 that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. And uh, there are a few things, a few other emphases I wanted to go through with you on this, Carter. And this whole idea that th- Ruth Marcus in the Washington Post says, welcome to the theocracy. Now, there's a whole shelf full of books in my library on people claiming that Christian influence in public affairs uh, is leading us down the road to a theocracy. Uh, Kevin Phillips wrote a book back at least in 2006, called American Theocracy. You had Damon Linker, who used to work with Father Richard John Newhouse, write a book called The Theocons, Secular America Under Siege. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times wrote Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. And this this horn gets blown every uh, few years, it seems to me, that we're on the verge of a theocracy. Why? I... You worked with the president, President Bush's Council on Bioethics. You worked with, you know, some deeply committed Catholics, uh, evangelicals, other Protestants. You worked with uh, Jews and uh, those who had no uh, religious faith. Did you know anybody there that wanted to see a theocracy? It's it's it is amazing how it just sort of comes back around. For, for so on the cynical explanation probably is that it's it's a very politically advantageous charge to make uh we're in a political season right now during you know both parties are having their primaries for the presidency uh and and you know politics is polarized like never before at least in my memory um and uh and people are divided bitterly culturally and people um and retreat into their own little discourse communities which are, you know, more or less hermetically sealed, uh, where they talk only to people they agree with. And yeah, it's an like, echo I chamber. Mean, I don't want to embarrass my mom. I love my mom. She's a wonderful woman. But my mom just, like, sits around and watches MSNBC all the time. <laughs> and she'll call me up, and she's like, did you know this or, ha- this or that's happening? I said, Mom, you need to diversify your, your, your media intake a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, now, she does love EWTN, so she probably gets some balance in that respect. But, 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 but the point is, is that... Uh, is that there are a lot of people who have no idea what their neighbors believe about things, and they assume the worst. They have a caricature in their mind of what you know of, of what people believe, and um, 
and it's and it it, uh, it creates a very toxic social environment. I mean, I have wonderful friends um, from college and law school who, since we graduated, you know, work in their own communities and they live in parts of the country where they are surrounded by people who agree with them and never encounter people they disagree with. And, and these are very secular environments. And the thing they're most worried about are people like you and me imposing our religious values <laughs> right. on them and, and ruining their lives and preventing them from doing the things they want to do. Um, you know, they've never been to a Catholic worker house, I guess, to see how <laughs> the Catholic Church serves the homeless or, or how, how, you know, we invented the hospital, for example. Right. I mean, but, but, it, I mean, it, it's people have a very one-dimensional and, and caricature view of what what Catholics, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and other religious people believe, and uh, and this is a kind of useful useful boogeyman. On the on the other hand, um, you know, uh, I think it also reflects a kind of deep ignorance about the the normative nature of positions. I mean, Ruth Marcus has very strong views. I don't think that they're neutral views. I think she has very strong views that are rooted in particular presumptions about what humans are and yep. what human flourishing is and what the ends of human life are. And, uh, and they have to do with freedom and autonomy and expression and so on. And, and, and um, uh, you know, that's a worldview. And, and the fact that, 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 you know, in our public square, people are trying to advance that worldview through politics doesn't make it any less uh, normative than than you and me saying that we should love our neighbor the way we love ourselves and serve the poor and have a preferential option for the weak and vulnerable. Yeah, I mean this is one of the things that just surprises me. Everyone has an anthropology. Everyone yeah. has an idea uh, of what people are for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 yet they don't seem to understand that. This discussion of the law is really about protecting and flourishing persons. And so what are these persons that we're trying to protect and lead to flourishing? I, you mentioned Ruth Marcus. I don't know if she th realizes that she has an anthropology, that she has an entire worldview. I don't know if she's conscious of those assumptions because that's the way it is for most people, I think. It, there are certain assumptions they make about what people are for. Yeah, well, Walker, you almost quoted Walker Percy perfectly a moment ago. Walker Percy said, you know, everyone has an anthropology. Anyone who says they don't have an anthropology is either concealing it from you or hasn't thought to, to consider what their presuppositions are. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and again, the fact that ours correspond to our religious tradition I mean, if you think about it, homicide laws correspond to our religious tradition. Yeah, yeah. The law, welfare laws correspond to our religious tradition. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're de facto illegitimate because we believe that we should care for our neighbor because we believe our neighbor's made in the image likeness of God versus care for your neighbor because you have some kind of, you know, culturally inherited set of values that are basically Christian values that have subtracted Christ from them. I mean, so it, and you see this in the in the debate in, over Europe in Europe over the inclusion of references to Christianity in in, in the in the European Union and their and their constitutions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a puzzling thing, and it's unfortunate. And again, people understanding the Catholic Church's position on IVF, which isn't simply about not killing in, embryonic human beings, but also about thinking about how babies come into the world and how children should be begotten and not made and supervene over 
the loving act of, in, under ideal circumstances, spouses in the conjugal union, that that actually has that that, that is the the optimal way for a child to come to be. And to if you if you adopt a a kind of posture of rational mastery towards the manufacture of human life in the laboratory made to order. I mean, the way IVF is practiced, this is another thing that's not being talked about. The most common use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in America is for sex selection. People people choosing little boys over little girls. Yeah. They uh, People excluding embryos on the grounds or people choosing embryos because of all sorts of non-medical traits. Businesses growing up trying to sell, you know, genetic testing for IQ. Right. Or, 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 or people put taking out ads and um, in college newspapers for for female students who have high you know SAT scores and good health histories to you know pay them ten thousand dollars or even more for their for their eggs. So you know, this a, is this is a consumer. This is yeah. No, this is a consumer issue now. Different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. And the families who are desperate to have children um, are incredibly vulnerable, and and they and they you know they they and they're easily easily um taken advantage of by 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 people in this particular industry and and um you know i say that as a a person uh, who formed his family all my babies we adopted all of our babies mm. you know yes. and um and my wife is writing a book right now about uh infertility and catholicism so this is not something that catholics are sort of smugly indifferent to i mean this is something that that we think about a lot and we have a kind of answer for the, the cross of infertility and how to think about it in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you've never seen our politics as polarized as we see it today. Uh, this this makes it difficult, of course, to have the kind of communication uh, with those with whom we disagree. Do you see any bright spots on the horizon? Yeah, I think... I think it has to happen in individual instances. I think the way we I don't I don't see any grand solution to the problem of polarization, but I think that insofar as we in our own lives can internalize the proposition that we love our neighbors the way we love ourselves and that's unconditional love and and we want to express that, I think that when we become friends with people and we and we show them that we care about them no matter what, then we can open the possibility of genuine uh, exchange of ideas and, and people will listen to one another. You're, you're not going to listen to somebody if you think that they think you're, you're a terrible person. Right. And, uh, if, if, but if you know somebody that cares about you and they have a completely different perspective, you're going to think about it and they're going to think about it and you're going to, and, and so that's, that. I think that friendship is the only antidote to this kind of polarization, which is not, of course, a political program, but a personal program that we should pursue in our own lives. Yeah. And it's something we can do in our own lives. Exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, this question of that you address in, in your book, what it means to be human, is seems to me to be incredibly important. And is that being asked in a serious way in academia? Um, you know, in in the world of uh, our in our medical establishment, is that a question? What is it? What does it mean to be human? Is, is that a question that actually is there a healthy conversation going on somewhere about this? Well, again, that, as you as you generously point out, that was what I was trying to argue in the book. I was yeah. trying to make the case in the book what it means to be human that 
when we're having these debates over bioethical questions that arise in the public square and that we govern ourselves on, uh, we have to ask the fundamental question before we know what law to to vote on or what policy to adopt. We have to ask the question: Is this is this good for human flourishing? And the only way the, you know the answer to whether or not a particular measure is good for human flourishing is if you know what a human being is, yeah. and if you know what human beings are for. And uh, and we have to have those conversations. And whether it's happening or not, I hope it's happening. I mean, I'm trying to to make the case for, for it uh, in the public square, and certainly at places like Notre Dame, it's happening. Um, but uh, but I, I I do think we have some work to do, um, and, and and I think we uh, and I think people are afraid of discussing deeply held views, normative views. They're worried that they're they don't want to impose their values on others or have their others' values imposed on them. But I think once we realize that there's no avoiding that question, and you cannot you cannot pursue laws or policies that are aimed at human flourishing without having the conversation of what is human flourishing. And, and that requires you to go back even further and say, well, what are human beings and what are they for and what yeah. do we owe to each other? Yeah, I, I, it, I mean, we're reaching a point where we're having more and more discussion about death and dying and uh, mm-hmm. medical assistance in death and uh, uh, so-called right to die. Um, we have here assisted reproduction that we just saw with in Alabama and this in vitro fertilization uh, law. Uh, of course, we've talked about abortion has been the place where this has been discussed most commonly. But uh, it seems to me we're reaching a critical point because we are becoming increased. We're be- getting better and better at the technology here. Um, and it, it seems to me that we're far ahead in the technology than we are in the I don't know, uh, anthropology or the philosophy. I think you're right about that. And, and something that um, folks may have missed uh, last month or in, in January, there was the first, uh, re- it was reported the first successful cloning of a human primate to term. Yeah. So we'd never cloned a human primate before that was born and lived outside the womb. And now we've crossed that line. Uh, and that is something that is going to reopen an awful lot of questions. And as you say, these things are going to rush ahead unless we talk about this and what we what's you know and draw some lines and figure out what we think about what should and shouldn't be done with these technologies. People are going to push ahead. They're going to rush ahead. They're going to do these things, yeah. and it's going to be a matter of trying to put uh, put the horse back in the in the barn. Yeah, yeah. Carter, again, thanks for being with me today, and uh, greatly appreciate your work, and uh, hope we can talk again soon. Great, thanks, Al. You take care. Carter Sneed is the author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. It's an outstanding book. And um, it, it, comes, it comes back to the, the thing that is so important to us uh, as Christians, as Catholics in particular, because we have a well-developed understanding of the human person. But our culture it doesn't seem to be wanting to engage this question about human dignity. Uh, They seem more interested in using technology to get results on human beings, in human beings, without asking, what are human beings and what are they for?